morning, everybody. Um, and I want to welcome those online as well who are joining us from a watch party today. We welcome you, and thank you for joining us that way. If you don't know who I am, I'm the lead pastor here at the Gospel Tab, and uh, we are going to be in the book of Amos for one more Sunday, so you can turn there in your Bibles, or it will be on the screen behind me as well. Um, I just wanted to take a time here uh, before my upcoming sabbatical, which I'll say more about in just a second, um, but I wanted to take some time to uh, just do three teachings from the book of Amos that are foundational for us as a family on mission, um, because God has called us to be a people of justice, a people for the poor, for the oppressed, and um, I just wanted to take some time to uh, just kind of revisit some of those foundational teachings, because it's so much part of our DNA here at the Gospel Tab and in our network. So we've looked at uh, the book of Amos before on these topics, but it's good to revisit it again with you. And I'll remind you some of the context of Amos in a second. Um, but just so you know, in about a month, I've been announcing it, in about a month I'm going to be taking um, a three-month sabbatical um, from my normal responsibilities here at the Gospel Tab. Um, it is just for me a time to pray and rest and write some. I'm going to be um, getting some things out of my head onto paper that I'm sure, um, you know, we will end up using in the network in time. And so I just thank you for giving me this opportunity as we head into this next season of multiplication where God is leading us as our network continues to expand. And we talk about multiplying churches and businesses and nonprofits and missional communities that are on mission um, I'm really grateful that you're giving me some space just to hear the Lord and to get some things on paper. Um, but you're going to be in very good hands. Your pastoral staff is capable. Um, there's, you, you guys know for uh, many years now, we have a team of about 15 people that uh, preach in this gathering. And so some of them will be with you in uh, the end of November and December and January and February. And I'll be back around February 20th. Um, and Steve has already stepped into an expanded role here at the Gospel Tab, and so he'll be your line of contact if you have any concerns or you need anything. Um, I know Steve will be eager to serve you as he already does so well, so um, thank you for that. All right, so the book of Amos, just a little bit of a reminder about the last two weeks. I think these sermons have been uploaded and they're present on social media as well, but just a little bit of context I've been saying for the last couple of weeks that the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, remember that God's people have been through a civil war by this point, and so they've split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This is hundreds of years before Jesus has been born. And uh, the northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And I said there were these giant social forces at work uh, that really weren't the result of just one person's choices. Um, these social forces were really the result of a multitude of choices made by a bunch of different people with outcomes that they didn't even necessarily choose, um, but it ended up in a place that was far from God's heart in the nation. It's very clear in the Old Testament law that God's society, the nation that he established, was to be a place that protected the vulnerable, the oppressed, the poor. Um, it was to be a place that welcomed the immigrant. Um, and God's people in the northern and southern kingdoms, but Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom, have lost this part of God's heart. The nation is sick. This isn't just an individual sin. This is a national sin. And Amos is prophesying to the people at this point. Um, some of the social forces at work 
our colonization, King Jeroboam II, who is now king of the northern kingdom, has been a successful king, a popular king, and he has expanded the territory of the northern kingdom at, uh, at a rate uh, that has never been seen before, and so new lands have been added into the kingdom, but this has been distributed to a small elite class of people. Um, the king and his nobles, essentially, have received this land. This has resulted in the specialization of the economy. So Israel, up until this point, had been a nation of small family farms. Uh, you would grow enough for your family and to take to market, but that was pretty much it. Um, but now there's these huge farms that are producing specific crops, um, specific products, and the small family farms can't compete against that kind of large farm system. And so this is resulting in urbanization. People are losing their land because they're having to borrow from the nobility to pay their bills. And they're defaulting on their loans and being kicked off of their land. And so for the first time, Israel has a whole class of people who do not own their own land. And it's a growing class. And they live in the cities. Many of them can't find work even there. And so they're ending up in servitude, eventually in slavery. And I said over the last couple of weeks, all of this is being done legally. Um, it's unlikely that laws are even being broken. This is happening through the courts. People aren't paying their debts, and this is the consequence. Um, but the prophets are called to speak to this and to say, no, you've missed the heart of the law, which is to protect the vulnerable in society. And if, if the outcome isn't that, then something is wrong in the society, and this it calls for repentance. Something needs to be fixed. Something is being missed by God's people and we pointed out last week that the first, the first chapter of Amos is really this long list of war crimes that's been committed by the surrounding nations, some of them pagans, some of them cousins of Israel, some of them blood relatives. Um, but it's these terrible, vicious war crimes. And you just see God's abiding concern for human life, not only the lives of his people, Israel and Judah, but even the lives of the pagans who surround Israel. God's just concerned for these people um, who are just eating each other alive as empires go after other empires. But then God speaks to his people not about war crimes. He isn't, his charge against Israel isn't war crimes in Amos chapter 2. It's economic injustice. And he speaks to his people as if this is a life issue too. Um, that the degradation of the poor in their society is not honoring the image of God in people. And so he speaks to this as well. So we're going to pick up um, by reading the end of the passage that we have the last two weeks, God's charge against Israel, um, Amos 2, verse 6, and it will be on the screen. Let's just remind ourselves what, how God opens up his argument, his charge against the northern kingdom of Israel. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver. And the needy for a pair of sandals, we said this references that it has become easy, even for a pair of sandals, for people to lose their land, end up into servitude. This does not um, um, value the lives of vulnerable people in the way that God would want. Verse 7, they trample on the heads of the poorest, on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Here the prophet is speaking to something of the hearts of his people that the most vulnerable in their society are trampled on. This was not God's plan. This is not what God himself would have wanted. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Here, this is a verse about the sexual exploitation of female slaves. 
in households. And so it's the linking of sexual exploitation to economic injustice, something that still happens to this day as a way to um, subjugate people. And then verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. In other words, um, this is resulting in pleasure for people who are benefiting from this system, finer wine. Meanwhile, people are losing their garments. They don't have enough to wear. Um, and so this is the charge of the prophet. Now, I just want to say at this point, you should know that from the Old Testament and in some places in the New Testament, that God is not opposed to the creation of wealth is not opposed to people making money. Um, and there's plenty of verses to show that. What he is utterly opposed to is making money at the expense of other people. And maybe more particularly to the book of Amos, um, making money at the expense of people, even when the person doing it didn't make a conscious choice to do that, they're just participating in the unjust system that they're a part of and not thinking about how it's affecting people. Um, according to scripture, that is still sin. I think that's shocking to a lot of Christians because we have a very impoverished theology of sin. I think we have bad definitions for sin. Maybe one of the more uh, you know, commonly used ones is that sin is like breaking a rule or doing something wrong. Um, sin does involve breaking God's law. It does involve making a choice to do something wrong. But scripture doesn't talk about our sin just like it's rules that have been broken. If that's all sin was, we could be moralized out of our sin. We could just be taught you know, to do the right thing and we would somehow find a way of escape. Scripture talks about sin like it is a power that enslaves us, entangles us. And so we don't need just taught out of our sin. We need saved out of our sin, right? We need someone who has more power than that sin and that death than all of these things that have entangled us. And part of what has entangled us is not just our individual choices, but the society in which we live. And the way that sin works in that society, whether I made a conscious choice for it or not, I am part of this power that is enslaving me and the people around me. Who can save us? This is what leads us to the need for a savior, right? To the person of Jesus. So all of this is good to talk about justice. We're deeply committed to this. In our network, the Gospel Tab, we are a justice people. We love to amplify the voices of the oppressed. Um, we love to amplify people, the voices and the concerns of people who are in the margins. We think that this is part of what it means to be people who are seeing the kingdom of God come on earth. It's, it's all the same thing. You know, different groups of Christians emphasize different parts of the kingdom of God coming. It's like this group over here says the kingdom of God is healing the sick, you know, and healing physical bodies. Well, we, we believe that here at the Gospel Tab. When the kingdom of God comes to physical bodies, we see healing, Right? Um, some people talk about the kingdom of God like it's just the proclamation of the word, like it's just evangelism and people responding in repentance and coming to salvation, being baptized in water. Well, we definitely believe that at the gospel tab as part of what it means for the kingdom to come, for people to respond personally in repentance and to be baptized in water at the proclamation of the gospel. Um, you know, and so then there's groups who talk about the kingdom of God only in terms of justice, you know, like it's just lifting up the poor, like it's just caring for the oppressed, caring for the needy in our communities. Well, we believe that too. What we want when we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking Jesus to do all of these things and more, right? To show up in the fullness of his kingdom and to establish his kingdom in all of these ways. 
Um, I find in many churches, in many movements of people, there's kind of narrow definitions of what it means for the kingdom of God to show up. We want to say, look, if it's the kingdom, I want it, right? If it's God, I want it, right? If God is healing physical bodies, I want to be part of that. If he's casting out demons, I want to be part of that. Um, if he is causing people to respond to the message of the gospel and be baptized in water, I want to be part of that. If he's lifting up the poor and the oppressed and he's calling us to be advocates for their cause, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of it all. Don't you? You know? Just to be part of everything, you know, that God is doing. But that's not really what I'm preaching about today. What I really want to get to is verse 9. Um, because I think as we talk about justice, we miss something if we don't talk about what grace has to do with justice. And I think for the justice crowd, for the people who love to see the kingdom of God come in justice, come in activism, come in speaking up for the poor and the oppressed, um, I think sometimes this gets missed, and I don't want us to miss it, because I think this is something that God has deposited into us. In Amos 2, verse 9, we see language that shows up in the prophets, um, all throughout the prophets, actually, as God's justification for why he commands these things, for why he commands the embrace of the immigrant, for why he commands the lifting up of the poor, for why he commands uh, speaking up for those who don't have a voice for themselves. And it's really his grace that's the justification. Verse 9 says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. God is saying, I went before Israel in their history, and I took care of their enemies. I made a way so that they could uh, have victory over their enemies. I loved what we were saying today about a voice of triumph. God had promised this to his people. God said, I gave this victory to them so that they could step into the promises that I, that I had for them. And then in verse 10, he goes back further into their history. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. And this is a theme all throughout the prophets, that when God is justifying why he commands what he commands concerning the poor, the oppressed, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, um, he always brings this up. Because I brought you out of Egypt. Because I brought you up out of slavery. Because you were a people who were nothing. <laughs> enslaved. The bottom. No one cared about you. God is telling them, you got to know me in the context of me finding you and delivering you from your enemies, delivering you from your oppressors. And this is something that God never wants them to forget. If you really want to see this theme, not just in the prophets, but in the Old Testament law, it shows up in a bunch of places, but I love how it shows up in Deuteronomy, which is some of the very core of the Old Testament law that God delivered to his people at Mount Sinai. Um, I just want you to see a few passages here. First of all, Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is, Israel has been delivered from slavery, but they haven't yet been brought into the land that God promised them. This is hundreds of years before the book of Amos. This is what God says to them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities, Look at this. You did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery. God is telling his people, I'm about to give you all this stuff, and don't forget that you didn't build it. You didn't dig it. You didn't make it. All of it, from beginning to end, was grace. And this is very pertinent to how we view issues of justice because we are much less likely to share with people in need when we really think that we built it and we did it. And we, you know what I mean? God is telling his people, you didn't. Um, Even if you think you did, you didn't. It was grace. It was grace that led you. It was grace that sustained you. He's telling his people, you'd still be a slave in Egypt. If it wasn't for my grace, you may have built that house, but remember, you still would be a slave if it wasn't for me. Sure, you may have dug something, but you wouldn't have had the freedom to dig it if it hadn't been for me. It was God's grace that came before all of this. And he wants his people to remember, and us to remember, that maybe one of the most dangerous things we can do as the people of God is to forget his grace and to think that the evidence of his grace is the evidence of the working of our own hands instead of the gifts that he's given to us. So he wants them to remember everything that you have has been given. It's true for us. Because, of course, these themes in the Old Testament ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. Um, Sure, we may have built things. We may have started things. We may have stewarded things. But we wouldn't have had anything if Jesus hadn't found us, right? If we hadn't been liberated from slavery, if Jesus hadn't fought against our enemies, none of that would have mattered. Let's look further in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Look at this. I love this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. (laughs) But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Remember, Amos is prophesying hundreds of years after this verse in Deuteronomy at a time when the nation is feeling powerful and a time when they feel like God is on their side. Jeroboam II has been powerful in battle. The economy is booming. Sacrifices are being offered. Um, But they had been told before in the book of Deuteronomy, God did not pick you because you were something special. God picked a people who were slaves, who were at the bottom of the totem pole, who had nothing of their own. God did not set his affection on you, Israel, because you had something to bring to the table. He did it just because he loved you, because he saw that your brokenness was fertile soil for a story to be written about his love, right? So he wants them to remember that. Let's look further. Deuteronomy 15, 15. This is actually a section of the law where God is commanding the periodic releasing of slaves, an act of grace that was supposed to be part of Israel's practice um, to release servants, to release slaves. God built in these these demonstrative pictures of grace in the society that he had built. Um, And he had told them, you need to release the slaves in these ways. And this is the justification that he gives for why he's commanding this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. See, all the way through Deuteronomy and Amos and Isaiah and all these prophets, what's really being preached by the prophets and the law is the gospel of God. God is saying, I command these things regarding the vulnerable and the weak in society because I gave my grace to you. I brought you up out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, this is the only way to truly understand the commands of God in the Old and New Testament. Listen, the law is a real thing. 
There are rules in Scripture, right and wrong, and they do not change over time. The law is the law. It's the law. And God has given the law, and we ought to teach the law and know the law and read it in our Bibles. But the Bible is very clear about the law, that the law does not save, right? It's the gospel that saves. The law's power is only to condemn, but it's the gospel that saves. It's grace that saves, ultimately extended to us in the person of Jesus. It's his grace that saves us. And this is how we are to now understand every command in the law. So when Paul commands us to give in the New Testament, to be stewards of our financial resources, and to give and to share what he's given to us, he doesn't just tell the church that they should give because it's right, even though that's a true statement, that we should give because it's right. He says that they should give because Christ became poor for our sake. It's grace that goes before the command. It's grace that motivates the command. We don't give only because it's right. We give because we were given too. Because grace has taken shape in our heart and out of the overflow of that, we now give. And this makes giving not just an obligation that we perform under the law, but a joy that flows out of our hearts because we have received grace. The commands that once cursed us and killed us now become the very sources of joy in our lives because grace is animating and motivating them in our lives. Are you tracking with me? This is everything. Listen, we pursue racial justice, not just because it's right, even though it is. But because in Ephesians we're told that Jesus at the cross tore down the dividing wall of hostility between groups of people. When we enter into these conversations on race and class in our culture, we do it with the resources of the gospel behind us. Not just because it's right, not just because it's good, but because God tore down the barriers between us and him. And if the barrier is torn down there, then it's definitely torn down between me and you right? God has given us access. And so we do this out of the gospel. And so we end up pursuing racial justice, not as just some obligation, but out of joy that's flowing from our hearts into the lives of other people. It's our joy to see people reconciled because God reconciled us to himself, right? So this is how we are to understand the commands of God in the context of the gospel of God. And that includes Amos, the big charge that Amos brings against Israel is not just that they've oppressed the poor, not just that they've had found justification in their booming economy to leave behind a whole class of people. It's not just that. He's saying to them, you forgot what I did for you. You forgot the grace that I showed you. You forgot how I led you out of Egypt, how when I met you, you were nothing, but how I didn't pick you because you were something special. I picked you as the very least of all people. I picked you in that place. I found you in that place. He's saying, Israel, I got to know you as the God who liberates you from slavery. And now you can't extend that to other people. It doesn't just mean that you're breaking the law. It means that you're forgetting the grace that's been shown to you. That's why we take communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we're remembering we're a people of grace. We're people of grace. We were nothing when Jesus found us. We didn't dig the well. We didn't build the house. We didn't build our, we didn't do any of that. Jesus did it. And we just remember that grace came before everything. And it's why we use communion as a time to repent oftentimes, to examine ourselves. It's not just because we broke some rules. It's because we're remembering that it's so easy to forget grace. 
But as we remember grace, as we experience the grace of God in our lives, we're released to step more fully into the law of God, which then has the power to become life for us, right? To live in the life of God's commandments instead of just under the curse of those commandments. Okay, so grace is everything. And listen, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what circles you've been in. Let me tell you something about myself. I have spent time, and you know how I was talking about these different crowds of people, I have spent time in all three of these crowds, you know. Um, I don't know what your experience has been, but I've spent time where the kingdom of God is just the proclamation of the word, you know, in evangelism. And they're suspicious of healing. They're definitely suspicious of the justice crowd, you know. Um, they're convinced of this, but, you know, not of those other things. But I've spent some time over here with the justice folks, too, who love to speak up on behalf of the poor, who love to be activists in their community, I've spent time here too, and I want to tell you that if grace it doesn't form the culture of all of these expressions of the kingdom, then we just end up with new forms of legalism. We just end up with new forms of judgmentalism because it's what our human hearts will do with the commands of God. Um, you know how this crowd right here sometimes is just concerned about personal morality and not necessarily social sin? And how if... If grace doesn't form that, then what does a church begin to do? It begins to pretend like everybody is fulfilling the law when we know you all ain't. You know what I mean? But, but we begin to pretend that we are. Those who have kinds of sins that can be hidden better um, will hide them when they come to church. We create cultures where we learn to hide sin. And if, you, if, you can't, if your life is too much of a mess, if you can't hide it, you're probably not going to fit right? Um, and it becomes a game of comparisons, right? Well, the same thing can happen over here. Um, it's very easy for us to act like we're all fulfilling the law. Like, I have nothing. I didn't do anything. So I'm not part of injustice. I'm not, or, or I know all the right things to say. I know, you know, I keep up with the issues. I know stuff to say, and a kind of legalism forms over here, right? And where no one can admit that they have prejudice in their heart. Where no one can admit that uh, they have participated in a system that has oppressed people. Where no one could admit that they've been part of the problem. And I meet Christians all the time who have trouble admitting that because they're participating over here in a new form of legalism that teaches us to hide. It's grace that disables all of that, and it's grace that even shows up in a tough book like Amos. I led you out of Egypt. Amos is arguably the toughest book in the Old Testament, but grace shows up here too. So I, I just want to say these few things. I'm going to be done. As a people seeking justice, I have a slide up here. In our pursuit of justice, I want to say that grace scrapes out of our souls some things. And this is important because we do have a culture of biblical justice at the Gospel Tab and in the Greenhouse Network. But I think we need to let grace scrape some things out of our souls surrounding this issue. First of all, it scrapes out of our soul any sense of superiority. We can welcome the homeless, we can welcome the poor. We can welcome people who have been oppressed and not just welcome them, but listen to them, empower them, um, share what we have with them, um, because grace means that we were nothing when God found us. So I'm not any better than you. I can't look at the well that I dug or the house that I built and think that was me, think that that puts me on a different place than when you're at. Grace found you, grace found me, wherever grace found us, Right? And it just scrapes out of us any sense of superiority that we have. I was spending some time with some of our worship leaders yesterday morning. 
And we were just having such a good talk about how, you know, we have a lot of talent on our worship team, a lot of wonderful musicians, but how sometimes God's anointing is actually resting on the thing that is less musically superior, but it's what God is using. In the moment, God loves to use the weak things. He loves to use the things that are less polished, right? And we were just sitting there talking, wouldn't it be cool if in our relationship with the homeless, if in our relationship with the poor, that God used some of them to eventually inspire worship for us, um, to help us write songs, to speak into it. See, sometimes there's all different kinds of ways to exclude the poor and to exclude the oppressed from our gathering. Sometimes it's just prejudice in our hearts. I do run into churches that it's like God does something miraculous outside of their control, and all of a sudden poor people are streaming into their church, and the church sees it more as an annoyance than they do, uh, than, than their ability to see like Jesus' heart in this, you know? So it's just because of prejudice that's in their heart, a sense of superiority, but sometimes it's not even that that like noticeable, sometimes it's just that we only honor and put in center stage the polished people, the put together people, the people who are skilled. And it inadvertently communicates that if you're not that, that you don't have anything to, co to contribute to the kingdom of God. And I love that we've started to build structures in our network where people can lead truly even if they aren't polished, even if they aren't all put together, and we can say, no, God wants to use that too, right? There's no sense of superiority here. Everybody gets to play, right? But it's grace that causes that. I'm not better than you because I was a slave when God found me, and you're not better than me because you were a slave when God found you. I think it also scrapes out of us any need to control, and I say this because emotionally unhealthy people uh, who begin to step into justice and mercy ministry, oftentimes find it to be a place where they can express their emotional dysfunction in a way that sounds religious. Uh, for instance, they can engage offense, or they can engage anger, or they can engage control um, in ways that aren't necessarily godly but sound justified because it's on the behalf of other people or it's for this cause and sometimes as we get engaged in these giant issues that are affecting the lives of people, the people in our community, there's a sense that we need to control outcomes. Can I just tell you um, something very uh, honest? As someone who's been engaged in justice issues now for like 16 years, there are days when I'm not sure if we've made any real systemic difference. For all of the organizing and all of the activism and all of the praying surrounding poverty and race and education and immigrants and refugees and all of these things that we engage, there are days when I can't tell if on a systemic level, you know, if the lives of people are actually better, um, if we've actually made a real systemic difference. And here's why I'm telling you this, is because... I think the space that we're supposed to enter into in justice and mercy ministry is just to say, God, use me. I'm going to use my voice, my hands, my feet in the way that you call me. We're going to keep talking and find ways to be more effective, but the outcome belongs to you in the end. We're trusting that you're writing a story with the things that we're engaged in. We're trusting that you, no one defends the poor better than you, God. This is part of your identity. No one defends the oppressed better than you. 
And so I don't have to bring my control issues to the table to try to control outcomes. And this is so important because if we try to control outcomes on things like poverty, we actually end up taking dignity away from the poor in, as we try to help them. Um, because we're bringing our power and our control to the table instead of releasing that God might want to do something just as we serve, just as we trust him in the lives of the people that he's put around us. Next, um, as we are a people seeking justice, grace scrapes also out of us any self-righteous wokeness. Any self-righteous wokeness. Now, this is a phrase in our culture right now, you know, to be woke. It can mean a couple of things. Um, it can mean that as a person who's part of a people group that's been historically oppressed, that I'm woke to the dangers of that, that I might be woke to, you know, the ways that power is being used against, you know, my group of people. But as someone uh, who's part, and this has been my experience, someone who is part of a historically dominant group of people, it means that I'm woke to those dynamics that have sometimes oppressed other people that I might be unaware of. Because with more power, sometimes comes blindness. And so I might not be able to see it. So being woke is being woke to those realities. Now I want to tell you, this is kind of a buzzword in our culture right now. I'm just, I'm just going to share my, this is just my opinion. You know how Paul sometimes says, uh, you know, not the Lord but me. You know, he says in First Corinthians, this is not the Lord but me, okay? Um, so this is, just, this is just my opinion. Um, but I like this word. Um, I like it because I think getting woke is one of the primary things that Jesus does in our lives. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And waking up means waking up not only to his grace and mercy and love, but also waking up to the reality of sin. In all of its manifestations. So God wakes us up to all these things. And we see things that we couldn't see before. So I like it. I like the word. I use it. You don't have to. Not the Lord, but me. So you don't have to use it. I like it. Um, but I would also say this. The human heart is so deceptive that we have a way of even using that waking up on any issue to feel superior to other people. Um, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm part of, you know, what I represent has typically had, you know, historically dominance and has had power in our nation's history. And so, uh, you know, there was a time when I was less aware of these issues. I just couldn't see it. Now I see more of it. There are times when my heart wants to use that reality to think that I'm better than other people who can't see it, you know? To be like, well, at least I have this part of the law right. At least I can see this, you know, and you can't see it. And then sometimes I watch people sometimes try to prop up themselves in their wokeness by putting down other people who aren't woke. We must remember, and, no, and one of the people who said it best was Dr. Martin Luther uh, King Jr. We must remember that whatever justice and mercy looks like for us as the people of God, it looks like extending love to even our enemies. It looks like extending grace even to people who don't get it. It means showing love. Oh, we speak up for the poor and the oppressed, but we also sit at tables with people who don't get it and create space in our lives in those places too for God to work in the context of relationship. And I think we have to do that because if we don't, this other kind of legalism forms. One time I read an article written by, I may have shared this before, I can't remember, but it was written by someone who was raised in an evangelical Christian context. Um, and by their account, it was very strict, lots of rules on personal morality, which you could and could not do. 
you know, surrounding media and sex and friends and all these things, lots of rules. And they rebelled against that. And in their rebellion and kind of leaving the church, they ended up in a community that was seeking justice and, and um, you know, seeking to care for the poor and the oppressed. And this person said that even as they left the church behind with his teachings and all of that and kind of said, no, I'm not going to follow those rules anymore. And they ended up in this other group that was defining morality, not as uh, personal morals, but as, you know, caring and speaking up for the oppressed. He said, I found the same kind of legalism in this group of people over here. He said they were just judging different issues. He said they were judging if I put enough on Facebook. You know, if I spoke up enough on Facebook. They were judging the kind of food that I ate. You know, was it sustainably sourced? And did it come from, you know, all of these questions that are justice questions. Um, so they were judging, you know, what protests I showed up at and what protests I didn't show up. And he said completely different issues because this group over here didn't really care about the personal morality. You know, they've thrown all of that aside. But he said, I found myself in another legalistic group of people just outside of the church. He said, I recognize the same kind of pharisaical attitude. Um, we can't just exchange that pharisaical attitude here for that one over here. It's not going to liberate us. Because all it is is it's one form of the law here. It's one form of the law here. We need a gospel that transforms us, grace that transforms us. And in that place, we find freedom and forgiveness from every place that we have personally broken the law. And we find liberation in the law of God, in those personal commands. But that happens over here too. We find that God brings us into wokeness, into awareness, into repentance, surrounding um, systemic issues as well. And God liberates us to participate in what he's doing in the world in these places. But it's only the gospel that can free us, not a new form of morality. Morality. And I say that because I meet a lot of even uh, Christians who are passionate about justice issues, but man, they sound self-righteous. Um, I just think it's because the, the grace of God is it's not where that's coming from. The grace of God is what has to motivate this in our lives. And lastly, this is the last thing I say. Um, I think the grace of God has to scrape out of us any orphanhood to really be a people of justice. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, we tend to think like we're orphans, you know, like there's limited resources and we have to have our share of the pie and we have to fight for this and compete for it. And the love of God just freely given to us, God gives to each of us heaven. God gives to each of us himself. And it just takes away all of that orphanhood. Listen, on the human heart level, a lot of injustice that's perpetrated by one group of people against another group of people comes because one group is experiencing some kind of orphanhood. Um, because they feel like they're not enough or they're not going to have enough. And so the way to express this is to keep another group of people down, to keep them in their place, um, to subjugate them, all of this. But it's this, it's this poverty of having not ex fully experienced the love of God. And here's what I love about, about being a community of people that pursues justice with God is that we just grow deeper and deeper into his love. And we just discover how much that he loves us. This is what God does on these issues of justice. For the group that thinks they are something special, um, and this is Israel, as Amos is preaching, they think they're God's chosen. They, they were happy to hear 
Amos prophesying against these other nations, for the group that consciously or subconsciously thinks that they're something special, that there's something exceptional, that there's something better than, grace lowers that, right? Grace says to a group of people like that, no, you were just slaves in Egypt when I found you. <laughs> you know? That's all you were. You didn't dig your own wells. You didn't build your own houses. Grace lowers that group of people so that they can receive the love of God, so that their experience of God's favor is not tied to the things that they think they earned from God. They actually come into a deeper understanding of God's love for them because they realize that God loved them while they were still slaves. But then for the group that's oppressed, for the slaves in Egypt, God's love comes to that group and says, no, you are something special. <laughs> you think you're nothing. But actually, God is loving you. God is choosing you. God is coming to you with his grace. And this is how equity is created in the kingdom of God. God brings some of us down. He brings others of us up. But in that place, we experience his love and we experience relationship with each other. It's true for groups of people on justice issues, but it's also true for us as individuals. You know, if I think that I'm something special, I was thinking about this the other day. Have you ever met people who you compliment? Like, we have a dog now. We have a puppy at home. And uh, sometimes, you know, she just, like, rolls over on her back, and you know what she wants. She just wants, you know, your rubber belly, and then her leg starts, you know, going. She just wants. Some people, it's like as soon as you compliment them, that's the position they take. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, rub my belly, yes, more, 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 more. And you can tell, like, it's never going to be enough, you know, what you're saying to them. And it's, and it's because even though you might mean the compliment that you're giving, but it's because there's some kind of need in them to maintain this self-image as being something special or being something exceptional. When I meet people like that, I just want to say, you know God loved you when you were a slave, right? Like, he just loves you. And, and this is why that's good news, because it's actually much more freeing to be nothing special and just have God love you, that image of being special and being exceptional, oh, you gotta protect that. You have to keep finding compliments to convince yourself that's true. You have to keep working hard to get people to affirm you and to say things. It's very freeing to say, look, whether you notice me or not, God loved me when I was a slave in Egypt, right? So I don't have to look for all of that, you know, affirmation. But on the other side, for those of you here today who feel like you're nothing, who wonder if your life counts, who wonder if God loves you. I'm here to tell you, God found Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. He, he loves you just in that place before you did every, anything for him. You realize, right, that God chose Israel before he even gave the law to them at Mount Sinai. It's not like he trumpeted the law from Mount Sinai and said, okay, the people who keep this, you know, will be my people. He picked a people who didn't even know him who had no power to really do anything for him, who didn't even know right from wrong, didn't even know the law. And he led them into the desert to show his love to them. He picked them. And so if you feel like you're nothing, I'm here to tell you that God loves you in that place. There isn't one of us whose lives don't significantly mean something to God that aren't filled with significance from divine love. Um, because God reaches out to us in that place. And this is why in the same family, in the same family on mission, seeking justice together, people who have oppressed and people who are oppressors can be in the same, uh, I'm sorry, people who have oppressed and people who have been oppressed can be in the same family because grace brings us to this place. People who have more power and people who have less power can be part of the same family because grace leads us to the love of God. Um, 
people who have hurt and people who have been hurt can be part of the same family because we get to the grace of God, the love of God, right? Grace is what leads us there. Um, telling you all of this because I want you to know as much as justice sometimes feels to us like a thing of action, you know, speaking up, serving, making sure people's stories are amplified, all of that, it really is a, a thing of the heart. And the only thing that's going to sustain us in the long run, right, especially in the face of wondering if we've made any difference at all, the only thing that's going to sustain us in the long run is encountering the love of God again and again and again. Jake, if you could come play, and Steve, you can wrap up. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, um, Joel's talking about receiving and giving the grace of Christ and the love of the Father. And so if you guys can just extend your hands as a posture of receiving, um, I want you to know this isn't just a benediction or, or, in other words, a blessing I'm speaking at you. But there's spiritual significance to this every time we do this. Um, it's an impartation of God's living word that transforms us. Um, when we receive His Word. And so I just want to speak this over you. Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you in the name of Jesus. Out from within you will flow rivers of living water to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In the name of Jesus Christ.